John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, tells the story of Christian who's on this journey to the celestial city. Bunyan wrote this book while in prison in his hometown of Bedford, England, some 400 years ago. And the story is meant to be an allegory to depict the joys and the dangers of the Christian life. A map, as it were, to help guide suffering saints along the hard and narrow path to our celestial city, the New Jerusalem. As Christian is on this journey, he encounters two lions. These lions are intended to evoke fear in Christian. But Christian is not without help while he's on this journey. As an onlooker, watchful, yells out to Christian that these lions are only placed on the path to test Christian's faith. What watchful does next is he sings this song as Christian approaches the dreadful lions. Difficulty is behind. Fear is before. Though he's got on the hill, the lions roar. Christian man is never long at ease. When one fright's gone, another does him seize. Just like Christian's trek throughout the pilgrim's progress, the Christian life is marked by a host of dangers, toils, and snares. And what these can do is tempt even the most seasoned of Christians to become fearful. Whether it's fearfulness at what tomorrow might bring, or doubts that creep into our minds to test our faith, difficulty is often behind us, and fear is before us. But we, like Christian from the Pilgrim's Progress, are not without help. As we'll see in today's psalm, the Psalter teaches us how to sing despite the lions of fear which harass us. The Psalms, they teach us how to be hopeful, regardless of how hopeless our situation might appear. If you have your Bible or device, please open it to Psalm 13 as we now read God's Word together. This is God's Word for us. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that your word is clear. It's clear enough so even the youngest among us would understand it. It's clear enough so all of us can come to a knowledge of who our Savior is. And I pray that this morning you would use Psalm 13 to show us Jesus. Use your word to make much of your Son. Lord, use my many insecurities and the things that make me an ineffective communicator. Lord, I pray that your word would be communicated clearly. All for the sake of knowing your son more. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. When we open the Bible and read the Psalms, or any scripture for that matter, we must read and interpret them with the understanding that the passage or book we are reading is part of this larger story of redemption. It's part of a story that's telling us about God's plan to save a fallen people and his plan to restore a right relationship with him. The Psalms tell us of this story of redemption. They progress from their beginning toward their end in a triumphant fashion. In book one of the Psalms, they begin with David's confrontation with Israel's enemies. And as the Psalms march on toward this sort of praise-filled crescendo, they do so in the Hallelujah Psalms, Psalms 146 through 150. Until we reach this praise-filled end, there's a story that's being woven throughout the Scriptures throughout the Psalms, of a covenant-keeping God who has fulfilled and who will fulfill every single promise that he makes with his people. This story in the Psalms is about a king and his kingdom. We learned about that last week in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is often referred to as a messianic psalm. The Psalms also tell the story of this king's people. The, the subjects of the kingdom who advance God's purposes throughout the nation of Israel and the world around them. These subjects that we read about on the pages of Scripture, they're just like you and me. They experienced the pain of rejection. They experienced loss. They experienced heartache. They experience despair. What we find in the Psalter are songs that tell us about how God has acted in history to bring people to Himself, and how these people God has gathered in suffered. They suffered from their own sins and the sins of others. They suffered from the brokenness of this world. Yet what we also find in these songs is a testimony of how our God is trustworthy, even, even when things are hard. Today, our psalm, Psalm 13, is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of lament. Lament literally means a cry of sorrow and grief. 
The Psalms are filled with cries of sorrow and grief. In fact, about one-third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Now, the sheer volume of Psalms that are Psalms of lament should show us that lament is a normal pattern of life. It's normal. Psalm 13 begins with a series of questions. And these questions are meant to cause us to clearly see David's sadness and desperation over this imminent trial he's facing in his life. If you're taking notes, our first point is David's despair. David's despair. What we don't know about Psalm 13 are the details surrounding this specific circumstance David is in. We don't know which enemy David is referring to when he cries out in verse 2, How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Some biblical scholars have indicated that the enemies that this psalmist, David, is referring to are national enemies. The neighboring tribes that are seeking Israel's destruction. Others have indicated that the enemy might even be death itself. What we do know is that the threat from this enemy was real. It was a real threat that was harassing David. And it was fast approaching. We know this because he uses personal pronouns in this psalm, such as I, my, and me. And notice how he repeatedly appeals to the Lord in the first person of each line of our psalm. Now, at first glance, it might seem egotistical that David would be so concerned with his own safety and well-being. We could paraphrase these questions David is posing to the Lord as the following. Lord, what is taking you so long? Why are you letting me suffer in anxiety over what is coming my way? Can't you remove this from my life? Can't you destroy my enemy? The question then becomes, what gives David the right? What gives him the audacity to approach the Lord in this manner? David could approach the Lord this way because he was the king God had chosen to lead his people. This shepherd boy had from his youth a deep abiding trust in the God of Israel. We read about this in 1 Samuel 17 when David stands in bold defiance against Goliath and the armies of Philistia. This king, he was also given a promise that there would be one from his genetic line who would one day rule over the kingdom forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13 read, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. You shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Considering this promise, let's imagine David's mindset as the specter of death approached along with his enemies. 
This king, King David, was the one who was called to defeat the enemies of Israel. He was called to provide rest and secure peace for God's people. But if David was to lose his life, what would become of this promise? What would happen to God's people if David failed to protect them from their enemy and he lost his life? David's desperation and fear was not just a fear over his own life, but it was a desperation and fear over the safety of his people and the security of God's promise. You see, David was a good king. Unlike his predecessor and those who would come after to rule Israel and Judah. In one sense, we could say that David was a hero. He fought with valor on behalf of his people for the good of his people. But David was also just like us. His fear and his doubts expressed in this psalm show us a part of his fallen humanity. Certain that there are times when we, like David, share the same fear and doubts over our own circumstances. One undeniable truth about being a believer, if you've served the Lord for any length of time, you'll agree with me on this, is that we will experience pain. And this pain will lead us to lament. We too will cry out, how long, O Lord, over the many, many trials that are placed in our lives? This is because lament is an ever-present reality. And this lament faces all of us because sin and suffering exist in our world. What we find in the first four verses of our psalm is the cry of one who has lived a life of expressed confidence in the Lord, but who was nevertheless fearful at his death. David has shown himself to be a valiant and mighty warrior. He's lived this life of faith, but he turns his face to the Lord in verse 1, and he cries out, Will you forget me forever? Tremper Longman provides some very helpful clarification in his commentary on this verse when he states that the language, the language David used conveys that David is assuming that God might withhold comfort or help from David. When we ourselves find uh, a, a certain trial or we're facing a specific trial in our lives, we can believe that too, right? We can find ourselves believing that God might withhold comfort or help from us. But did God truly forget David? Was God really withholding help and comfort from David? Is it within the character and nature of our God to withhold help from those who cry out to him? Before we can attempt to even answer these questions, it's important for us to understand how this psalm, Psalm 13, fits into the larger context of redemptive history. Now bear with me. We're going somewhere with this. 
A few minutes ago, we read 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. That passage is often referred to as the Davidic covenant. Throughout the scriptures, God uses this concept of covenant in his dealings with his people. Covenant is simply an agreement between two parties, much like the covenant a man and woman enter, enter into at marriage. In the ancient world, specifically in the ancient Near East, covenants were an extremely important part of life. A conquering king would come into a nation and enact a covenant agreement with the kingdom he conquered. And what he does in doing this is he promises protection and peace to this newly subjugated people. There were also personal covenant agreements made between families, such as the one between Jacob and Laban in Genesis 31, in which those two families made an agreement that promised safety and protection toward the other. These covenants, what they did is they guaranteed that one party is now oath-bound to the other. The parties enter into a lifelong relationship with one another. The Lord made a covenant with David. And this, in this covenant, he promised that David's son, or his offspring, would rule over the kingdom forever. But even prior to this covenant commitment that the Lord made with David, God had made other covenants with Israel. Think back to Abraham. Genesis 15 details how God made a covenant with David's ancestor, Abraham, by telling Abraham that he would be the father of this great nation, a nation that would bless the nations of the world. Then, in Exodus, God makes a covenant agreement with Moses to bring the people out of Egypt so that this nation would serve God. The Lord would be their God, and Israel would be their people. His people. And now, Psalm 13. Find Psalm 13 being placed right in the center of redemptive history. In a period in which the Davidic covenant, the promise that God would establish this eternal king over his throne, has not yet been fulfilled. David knew that he was God's chosen king. He was also aware that God had made these covenants with the patriarchs before him. And David knew that God was faithful to every single one of his promises. If he knew all of this, why is David now fearful at the prospect of his death? Why does David lay out his complaint before the Lord and in verse 3 say, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Simple answer is, it's because David was human. David had fears and he had worries just like you and I do. He was afraid. Something interesting happens, however, in verse 5. A shift occurs in David's perspective. David 
had heard these stories from his youth of how the Lord had caused Abraham to become the father of the nation of Israel. And now this was all the Lord because Abraham and his sons were liars. They were connivers. These weren't the type of men that we would choose to advance the grand plan of redemption. Jesus, uh, David, was also intimately familiar with the story of the Exodus because David had recited this since he was a young boy by celebrating the Passover. David understood that God had promised that Israel's firstborn would be passed over as the angel of death visited the Egyptians in the night and that God's people were subsequently brought out of Egypt. But David... He also knew that it didn't take long for these newly freed Israelites to complain that Moses was taking too long to provide any direction. This was while Moses met with the Lord at Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. These complaining and impatient Israelites, what they end up doing is fashioning this golden calf to worship. Despite their sinful behavior, David knew that God was patient with his people. David knew the only one who could bring this covenant promise to pass was God himself. David lays out his complaint to the Lord because only the Lord could and would bring the promise of a king to rule over Israel forever. And only God would bring that to pass. So what happens in verse 5 is David turns the prospect of death from a cry of lament into a song of praise. This leads us to our next point, David's song and our hope. David's despair had led him to this dark place of questioning and even questioning his own faith. He asked questions in the first four verses like, will you forget me forever? And how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? But in verse 5, David states something radically different. What he writes is, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. If you walk away with anything this morning, please hear this. There's one takeaway that I'd like for each of you to hold on to, it would be this. The Lord does not act based on the quality of your faith or my faith. He does not act or move based on how sincerely we express our faith. He doesn't act or move based on how genuine our faith is. Please catch this. The Lord acts and moves based on the object of our faith. That phrase, steadfast love, which in Hebrew is the word hesed, can be translated as covenant faithfulness. The object of David's faith is the covenant faithfulness of the Lord. Recall how we just talked about God's faithfulness toward Abraham to make Abraham this father of of the great nation of Israel that would bless the nations of the world and his covenant commitment 
to Moses to bring Israel out of Egypt. What David does here in verse 5 is he brings to remembrance this same covenant faithfulness in this verse. Despite this situation David found himself in, he knew the Lord would preserve him. He knew the Lord would keep and hold him. Though his faith might have been waning in that moment, David knew that God's covenant faithfulness, that God's loyal love was sure because God had shown himself faithful in the past. And the same loyal love, the same covenant faithfulness was set on David. You might be wondering, this is all well and fine, but how does any of this apply to me? Here we are, 3,000 years removed. How, what, what does this mean for me? Whenever we start hearing talk of covenants in the Old Testament, it can appear to be a bit antiquated. So that would be a good question. Where do we fit? How does this inform our own lament? How does this talk of God keeping his covenant promises to Moses, Abraham, and David, how does that apply to us? And I would answer, we share this same lineage. Because we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, who is referred to as what in the Gospels? The son of David. He is the one who's completely fulfilled every one of the covenant requirements. Now, notably, this psalm of lament, it parallels the cry of Jesus, who when faced with the prospect of death, cried out to the Lord, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David's lament in Psalm 13 was a foreshadowing of the ultimate lament of Jesus at the cross. David felt rejected by God. We, too, can feel rejected by God. Jesus was rejected by God. David was fearful that at his death, his enemies would rejoice. Jesus experienced the mocking of those who came to watch him die. David was also fearful that at his death, that it would bring the exaltation of his enemies. Through Jesus' humiliating death at the cross, death will never again exalt itself over us. David's song is our song. Our Lord's covenant faithfulness and loyal love should always lead us to proclaim, along with David, in the midst of our trials, that my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Because we've been saved from death. David recognized that the Lord would bring the promise to pass that a son better than David would come to reign and rule over God's kingdom. The son is Jesus. It was this hope in a better son which led David to sing. 
In verse 6, David declares, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This idea of being dealt with bountifully can also mean being dealt with in completeness, as Derek Kidner has noted in his commentary on Psalm 13. In other words, David is singing that the Lord's dealing with him has been complete, even while he was steeped in suffering, even when death was at his door. For the believer, our Lord has dealt with us bountifully in Christ, has he not? The Father has poured out his wrath on his Son so that those deserving of wrath receive the righteousness of God and life eternal. In my estimation, there's no better deal than that. There's no more complete of a deal than what we've received in Christ. But in an astounding act of grace, we don't just get eternal life. The Lord uses our pain. He uses our suffering. One of the benefits of being a Christian is that our suffering doesn't go wasted. Our lament is not just some sort of temporal experience. We can shed tears of pain and bring doubts to the Lord because he cares for us. He cares for us to the extent of using our pain and doubts for our greater good and for his supreme glory. In October of 2019, my wife and I experienced what was perhaps the hardest trial of our lives when she suffered a miscarriage. This caused us both to question the Lord's goodness. Doubts crept in. At that time, it didn't feel like the Lord was dealing bountifully with us. Some of the questions we took to the Lord were, why does this happen to us? My wife and I would both ask of God, how long, O Lord, will we go childless? But God, in his goodness, used a song to remind us that he truly does use every tear and all of our pain for our good and his glory. And what he does is he provides strength to the suffering. The song that ministered to us has the following lyrics in the bridge. It was written by Emmanuel Nashville, and it was written based on Romans chapter 8. The song goes, Missing not one of our sins and mistakes, our wasted years of guilt and shame, our brokenness, our tears and pain, missing not one, no, not one. He brings them all under the blood of the cross. He forgives and he redeems them all. 
the Lord uses our pain. He uses mistakes. He uses our guilt, our shame, our brokenness, and every tear we shed for his good purposes. And he uses what we think are our wasted years. The time that we spent in that suffering, he uses it. Christian, are you feeling crushed under the weight of guilt and shame of a particular sin battle? The Lord will not forget you. Are you brokenhearted over a wayward child or a loved one who does not know Jesus? The Lord won't forget you. Are you experiencing physical pain? You or a loved one experiencing the throes of cancer, drug addiction, mental illness. The Lord will not forget you. He will use your brokenness for his glorious purposes. Maybe you're suffering from doubt. Maybe you're in a season right now of intense suffering, doubting whether God is even good. If you're a Christian, he'll use your current doubt to give you future faith. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, my prayer is the Lord would give you, give you faith to believe this. You too can have this same hope. It's a free offer. You can have the same hope that your suffering and pain will not go wasted. That all of the trials you face in this world will be used for your good. However, until you're made new in Christ, your pain and your tears will not be redeemed. You will continue to experience heartache, suffering, and pain without a hope for the world to come. In closing, what Psalm 13 does is it shows us that we can take every fear, every doubt to the Lord. We can approach him in our suffering because he wants us to be reminded that the object of our faith is Christ himself. Not how much we express faith, but Jesus. Not deliverance out of suffering, but Jesus. He's the object of our faith. We can approach him with all of our doubts, and he will sustain and keep you. David knew this. He appealed to the covenant faithfulness of our God in his moment of despair. We can go to Jesus when we are suffering. Our faith, it can feel depleted, it can feel diminished, but his mercy and his grace never runs dry. Psalm 13 teaches us Christians how to sing with hope. 
teaches us that although there are trials that we will face, that although there is brokenness that will come our way, we can sing with hope. Psalm 13 also teaches us that the steadfast love of the Lord is trustworthy. And he has indeed dealt bountifully with us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would be active in helping us all to see Jesus here in Psalm 13. I pray that as we walk away this morning, we'd be reminded that Jesus himself has suffered for the suffering. That we can place our hope in this Savior who has suffered on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for your word, again, for being so clear to us. Thank you that we can put our trust and hope in it this morning. I pray that you would cause us all to remember David's hope is our song, that the steadfast love of the Lord is trustworthy, and that you have dealt bountifully with us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.